0: If you will, open your Bibles, whether physical or digital, to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. In the equipping hour, I kind of gave a macro view of the priority of church planting with regard to missions. And we're going to drill down a little bit in this passage, which is uh, supremely... Uh, an overarching statement of missions for Paul's personal testimony as a missionary and the driving force behind his ministry personally. And we're going to see it as we read these verses. I, I want you to think that perhaps God may reveal to you through the teaching, preaching of his word this morning, something fresh, something new for you to take hold of as a believer and understand in a deeper way. One of the cardinal sins of Bible study is to come to Scripture with the idea that we already know what's there, and we already know what the conclusion is, or the main point is, without studying it fresh. Jeff has to wrestle with this every week in preparation. You you come fresh to the Scripture, you read it, and you look at it almost as if it's the first time, and then you read it over and over and over again, and God uses it in your life. In fact, that's part of my own missionary call. Uh, when I was a kid, about that age, right there, those guys drawing me on the second row. <laughs> our, uh, our student ministry, um, our, our Sunday school class, had the opportunity to say, okay, kids, we want you to read the book of Acts and see who can read it the most times in a month. So I took the challenge. I said, okay, I, I'm going to do this. I'm going to read the book of Acts, Acts 1 to 28. I would be reading it every spare moment, even when moments weren't spare. I would be reading it during the message on Sunday morning. That's not a suggestion. But I read it a whole bunch of times. And moving forward through my life, I see that the convictions that were formed by just reading the book of Acts over and over and over and over again kind of gelled Into the proposition that I have for you today that the local church is central in God's program. It's central in God's purposes for everything in the world. It's central in missions. And so, this idea about the centrality of the local church in missions really came from reading the book of Acts over and over again when I was just a double digit kid. And I didn't know it at the time. So I encourage you to take fresh eyes and look at this passage again. And, and let me walk through it with you. And hopefully explain a little bit about what I see. One of the foundational biblical concepts that often escapes the philosophy of missions in the 21st century. Is this centrality of the local church and missions. Missionaries it. I remember Conrad and Biwi saying... Um, it's, it's horrible to see missionaries on the field where they have churchless missions. They don't, they don't think about the local church as part of their ministry. And it's just as horrible to think about the church in the West, he was speaking of, the, the sending kind of church, as being a missionless church. Now it's true, as I spoke with a brother during the break time, all of us have a responsibility for the gospel, to share the gospel with our neighbors and friends. That's true, absolutely. But to not have a vision for our personal individual responsibility as an individual in the church to witness and as a church to witness in our community and have missions on our on our radar for spreading the gospel to places that have never heard, that, that's a shame. And our African brother from Zambia, Comrade Mbiwi, made that kind of statement. Mission agencies miss it. I've served under agencies and with agencies, both on the field and in North America, that don't get the centrality of the local church in everything having to do with missions. And it's a shame because there's a lot of tragic failure. And preventable attrition that happens on the field because agencies don't get the role and responsibility of the local church. I get a kick out of, but it also makes me angry to come into contact with missionary candidates that don't get it. So, missionary candidates are very idealistic people, usually, they're younger adults. And they feel like, well, you know, maybe God's calling me to missions, therefore I have a right to everybody else's money to get to the field. And I am going to bring the silver bullet that slays the dragon of the unreached, whatever that means, right? I'm going to do the thing that nobody else has done for decades or centuries ahead of me. And we're going to see God just break this thing wide open and all of a sudden lots of churches are going to be planted. And sometimes those people actually get sent to the field and they have never been a functional part of the local church for very long. They don't even understand the qualifications of leadership in First Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1. And they expect to plant a church. How are they going to do that? They don't even know what the shape and warp and woof of a church really is. It's, it's really just people like you and I, but... With biblically qualified elders, how do you raise up biblically qualified elders if you're not one? How do you understand what the role and function of church leadership is if you've never worked with the messy, heart-rending situations of humanity and sin that exist? Because we are just saved sinners. So the consequences are extremely significant in missions work. Missionaries on the field can get distracted by good missionary activities and methodologies that are inconsistent with the centrality of the local church and missions. Mission agencies can fail to give proper respect and partnership to local churches in the process of even vetting and preparing and fielding and shepherding missionaries on the field. It's really important to me. I, I can easily come to the point of tears over the level of attrition in the missionary workforce across the world. And you've maybe known of people or know people yourselves personally that have gone to the field and been there for a while and come back never to return again. How, how devastating it is to them. How potentially hurtful it is to actually the work on the field to have such attrition, most of it preventable attrition. So this is a little bonus material, but most attrition on the field, that is people who leave the field for preventable reasons, preventable attrition, is caused by two things. One is lack of adequate preparation just going off like a hot shot because i think god called me therefore as soon as i can i want to zip out to the field and they haven't really prepared adequately for the challenges the loneliness the deprivation the spiritual vacuum that they encounter there and that's not to say anything about the environmental circumstances of life again during break time somebody said how did you live without running water in the tribe in the philippines i had running water Right? I took a bucket from my house, I ran to the pump, I pumped it, and I ran it back. We, we went intending to be campers for our whole time there. That's the way life was. It was just hard, and it was expected, but it, it was not something that was unforeseen. We had prepared ourselves for that, and a lot of missionaries don't prepare themselves for the simple hardships of just life in a foreign culture, in a foreign language, in a foreign place. of those who don't stay on hard fields for more than five years is a terrible statistic. And we can help that. So, the number one reason is lack of preparation. The number two reason in my book is lack of relational accountability and love with ascending church. Get that. Missionaries who have a church that understands that they need a special sense of care and love and prayer. And yes, financial support, but shepherding and accountability. Missionaries that have that stay long term. Missionaries that don't tend to come home broken, despairing. It's a hard fact. Today I want you to see from scriptures the centrality of the local church and missions. We're going to look at Ephesians chapter 3. And I want to read Ephesians chapter 3 verses 7 through 11. And then we're going to jump down to verse 20 and read those last two verses. Follow along. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace. Which was given me by the working of his power to me. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. Skip to verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. So there are five truths that I want you to grab hold of. Based on this passage, we'll reinforce it from some other things. First, the church is the central agent in God's plan. I want you to get that. Second, the church is the primary means of displaying God's wisdom. Third, the church is God's plan A forever. There is no plan B. Fourth, God's plans for the church achieve far more than our expectations. And lastly, fifth, God's glory in the church is for all ages. Before we get rolling, I want to take an aside to explain two insights you need to see. So when I say church, and I affirm that when Paul says church, what we really mean is The local church. It's not just the church distributed everywhere of all Christians, of all ages, of all times, all believers everywhere. Universal church, the Catholic, little c, all the church. It's the local church. It should be the default way to read and understand church in the New Testament. It just doesn't make sense in many of the contexts in which it's used to think of universal church. Now, if the context forces it to be read universal church, I get that. I have no problem with that. But Paul always thought of local churches. He says, I daily bear the burden of the churches. He wrote letters to local churches in God's providence. And by the inspiration of scripture, they became for us too as if they were written to us as a local church. But they're not to be received simply as individuals scattered about universal church everywhere. Local church should be the default interpretation when church is mentioned, unless the context says otherwise. Second thing to understand is Paul mentions the gospel here. The gospel is this fundamental understanding of the necessity and means of personal salvation. We sang it just a few minutes ago. You, you cannot be saved on your own effort. It's not of you, it's of God. This wonderful, unsearchable riches of Christ, he says, is the good news of Jesus' life and death on the cross, his resurrection and payment for our personal sin received by repentance and faith. So kids, kids, You're not a Christian, you're not a believer because your parents are believers. It's easy to assume that or to think that, but it's just not so. God does a work inside you to open up your understanding, to understand that you are a sinner and there's nothing you can do, no pattern of life you can follow that earns you the right to be a Christian. It's because of his work in awakening our spiritual condition to be able to repent and believe in Christ alone for our salvation. That's what he's talking about. So when we talk about the ministry of the gospel in this passage and really through the whole New Testament, that's that's the kind of thing we're talking about. That's what we minister to people. It gives hope to people who otherwise are hopeless and destined to an eternity of suffering in hell. It's for real. Do we believe this gospel? If we do, it has to make a difference in us sharing it with those who otherwise have no hope. So Paul rejoices in his calling. Let's look at this passage. The first truth is the church is the central agent in God's plan. Look at verse 10. Paul says, I get to preach the unsearchable riches and to bring to light what is the plan. And here's here's the plan. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Before Christ, this was not understood. In fact, we could say before Christ, this understanding of the gospel that Paul writes about in all of his letters, this was not clearly understood. The Jews thought of themselves as sort of God's holy people, and the God of Israel, Jehovah, Yahweh, was kind of their property, in a sense. And in order to understand and worship the one true God, you had to become a Jew. You had to follow the regulations. You had to do all the stuff that Jews do as Jews And worship in Jerusalem in order to be a believer in the one true God. And God in Christ, through the death, resurrection of Christ, and in the promulgation of the gospel to Gentiles, breaks that idea wide open. It is amazing. Imagine, if we had to follow all those restrictions today, we couldn't have bacon. By God's blessing and grace, we don't have to do those restrictions and regulations. He allows everyone to come in the same way. It's through the church that this is demonstrated to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. It's demonstrated to the world at large. So our love for each other, no matter where we come from, I mean, we could do the survey. Where do you come from to this sourdough country? Uh, people come from all over the place, a lot of backgrounds, a lot of ethnic um, background in your family, a lot of jobs, a lot of different things. The diversity of the body of Christ is a testament to the glory of the gospel. It's not reserved for some insider club. And this wisdom of God is displayed through the church. The church itself and its dynamic operation and love for one another And growing together in grace, in holiness, in worship together is a demonstration to the world that we belong to God. God has done a miraculous work to transform us into living, breathing worshipers of Jesus Christ. The second truth is that the church is the primary means of displaying his wisdom. It's not just the central agent here. It's this means of wisdom. I've already alluded to it. It's amazing, really. A lot of different people, different backgrounds, different needs, different sinful tendencies. We share this together in, in common, and we help each other. We encourage one another. We need each other. We're, we're different than each other. But within the church, we, we need each other. We need those that are all zealous about this thing. We need people that have weakness in this area. We need people who have gone through life in this area so that together we display the wisdom of God in the effect of the gospel in our lives. The third truth is the church is God's plan A forever. There is no plan B. Look at verse 11. Paul kind of summarizes this line of thought by saying this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. Wow. I've read Ephesians 3 a lot in younger years and didn't see that. Where did that come from? That the church is God's plan and that he planned it like forever to be so? That's amazing. We are plugged in and a part of God's eternal plan. Praise Him. That's fantastic. That's scary. Do you know how you operate or don't operate in the church? Reflects on your understanding of that? (laughs) So we're going to pause and just ask ourselves this question. Does the context of Ephesians and Paul's life and ministry support my proposition? The centrality of the local church and missions? I say yes. Turn over to a couple pages in your Bible or a couple screens on your device. Ephesians 5, verses 25 to 32. We often hear this during wedding ceremonies, right? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. "...and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body." Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, but I am saying it refers to Christ and the church. Did you happen to hear the church there? So often we take this and say, apply this to marriage. This is very practical, and yes, it is. And it, it's intimidating to read this as a husband and go, wow, do I love my wife that much? Do I really do this day to day? Do I take out the trash before she asks? Do I do the simple stuff to support and encourage her? Do I nourish and cherish her in a sense of building her up and helping her fulfill her her role and function in a way that she's spotless and holy and without any blemish? That's amazing. I'm convicted as a husband to read this. But Paul reiterates at the end, says... Listen, this is great, and it's true about the husband-wife relationship, but this is really about the church I'm talking about. The church is a demonstration of this holy marriage of the church as a bride, remember, think local church, to Christ. And what he's doing to slowly build us up and transform us to be without blemish or wrinkle and holy and that... That's amazing. We are becoming that perfect bride for Christ. Neglect of our role and participation in that process is neglect of something that is very important to Christ. And it's very important to God in his eternal plan. From chapter 3. Turn a couple more pages to the right. Colossians chapter 1. Verse 24 through 28, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of his glory of this mystery which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Did you see the church there? Paul understands that he's not just serving the Lord Jesus Christ in some sort of displaced way individually, but he's serving the church in this missional thing that he's doing. And he's actually writing a local church in a real place called Colossae that he had never visited before. This is an important moment for them to understand that Paul's ministry is not just for the sake of Christ and the gospel, but for the sake of local churches, I say, as part of God's plan. This is what happens when the gospel goes forward. Twenty-nine times Paul refers to churches in the plural in his letter. Clearly, local churches. He says, "I alluded to this earlier." 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight. There is daily pressure on me of my on me for my anxiety for all the churches. He's concerned about the local churches. They're real needs. They're real concerns. They're real problems. It's the dynamic of the local church in which God's wisdom is displayed. Hard for us to understand because we're so close to it. I mean, we just have this natural feeling. I I know in my church, I'll use myself as an example here. It's just not a good speaking thing to do. But in our church, there's people that I get along with more than others. My fishing buddies, I love to hang out with them during the break. And we lie about fishing stories all the time with each other. Other guys, not so much. There are people that we gravitate to, people who are in our small group, people who are closer to us in the neighborhood. Or, you know, and then other people, it's like, wow, you know, they live in another zip code in the auditorium. I, I don't really see them. So I say, as a missionary experiment, you should do this. Sit somewhere else. Find out what the culture of that place is. <laughs> just, just try it. I'm not kidding. It's different. You go, oh, wow, you know, people around here are singing really out loud. That's good. <laughs> you just you discover more things about the, the depth and the joy and the wisdom of God in the local church by getting to know your local church better, by, by finding that out. Extend yourself. Um, extend hospitality, bring people in. My wife and I have a plan that's never executed properly, like to, to get to know all the newcomers of the church by having them over for lunch. And let me tell you, we have just a humble house. And if all we did is serve hot dogs and baked beans and chips, it's the, the oil of relationship building, right? Doesn't have to be fancy. We've learned that. But just have people over and get to know them. Let them put their feet under their table Interesting thing, you might try this too. We just made this observation, it may not be correct, maybe we're jaded. Every single family that we had over to our house for a Sunday meal, and we asked them, like we didn't prepare, we don't usually ask them in advance, we just ask them right then, hey, if you don't have other plans, come over to our house for lunch. And if they say no, we go to somebody else. But every single non-member family that we've had over to our house becomes a member. Figure that out. Now, I'm not saying this is a new marketing technique, but I'm available for lunch. Simple things. Just being the body and extending ourselves a little bit to do what the body should be doing. We go on into almost every epistle and show Paul's concern for local church matters as the basic means of God's work in the lives of the saints. We just see it throughout the New Testament. That's the way it works. Um, His instructions for positive things and negative things, the put on and put off stuff of, of Scripture, that's real. That's genuine, and that's just like us. And that's why God gave us the Scriptures as if it was given to us in our local church. It just works that way. And if we need help, we ask for help. Look, I'm struggling with this thing. We have a thing in our church, and I don't know, maybe you guys will adopt it. Jeff is following along John's, you know, leadership. Yeah. Except in the hair thing. We have a thing called battle buddies. And so we we get guys together, and we have... uh, Guy food, so there's no frou-frou food in it. There's there's not a lot of salad. There's not a lot of things that are really healthy. We have guy food in the fellowship hall, and we meet together, and then we we help each other by pairing up, or sometimes it may be three guys together, say, we're going to intentionally try to meet together to encourage one another in the faith, to read some scripture and pray for each other, or to go through a book together. We have a list of about 50 possible books that are good for men to read together and do this battle buddy thing it's fantastic. It's great. So we have, I don't know, 40, 50 pairs of guys, and some of them are triplets, and, and they're meeting together. Not every single week. It's not a not a check the box thing. It's not a legalistic thing, but as they're able, they meet early before work, or they meet for coffee on a Saturday. They Somehow they, they work it out, and they're encouraging one another in their Christian life. And among those things that guys can do when you're alone with another guy that cares about you is share things like, I'm having this struggle with anger. I have this problem I don't really know how to overcome. I, I have this temptation that keeps raiding my mind. I, I, I have this situation at work. I, I don't know how to witness to my friend or my cousin or my neighbor. And those things come out In a great way because of the relationship that takes place in the local church being the body and doing the stuff. And that's the kind of stuff that Paul is actually addressing in the epistles. Yeah, it's rich doctrinal content, no doubt. There's a lot of wonderful indicatives that we learn about Christ. And all the imperatives are driven toward church body life. All the commands are about that kind of stuff. The fourth truth is... God's plan for the church achieved far more than our expectations. Look at Ephesians 3 again. Turn back there. These last couple of verses. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. So this plan A that God has, there's, there's no other means, there's no other device, there's no other grouping, there's no other like chapter unfolding here until Christ returns. It is the church, his plan A. And we're not told about any other plan B. Jesus said, I will build my church. He had no other building program. It's the church. We look at this, verse 20, and say, wow, this is, this is more, God's accomplishing more than we can expect. I say, This promise, this doxology, this benediction, if you will, is over the whole missional chapter of chapter 3. It's all about breaking down the barriers between Jews and Gentiles. It's about breaking down the barriers culturally. It's about breaking down the barriers of resistance to the gospel, if you will. It's about the church being the church in God's plan A for all ages. And when that happens, when we're in alignment with that, his, his blessing flows. We see God do things beyond our expectations. It's really cool. Tons of stories about this all over the place. So, for example, I was talking with a brother about this just this weekend. Um, it's reported, and we believe it's so because of multiple reports, that there are more people coming to faith in Christ in Iran these days, than in any other time in history. That's over and above our expectations. There are more churches, small ones, house churches, underground churches, growing up in the Muslim world than ever before in history. We have more resistance to the Christian gospel in one of the most populous countries in the world, in India, than ever before. And yet, there is witness going out to the 2,300 unreached people groups of India. Mostly through indigenous missionaries, than ever before. When China was shut down by communism, and all the missionaries kicked out in the early 1950s, people went to their knees, and they're praying for Chinese Christians and you hear story after story, that almost humorous to us in retrospect. It's like um, Chinese Christians getting thrown in prison for their faith. but there was two Chinese pastors in a prison, and they said, "Well, we can't let them have fellowship, so we're going to split them up to different prisons." And the Chinese pastors are going, "Great. We have more people to evangelize." And they did. So in our little uh, Yangon Ifugao tribe in the Philippines, the original translator of the New Testament thought, maybe there's about 3,500 people here in this one valley. Turns out the poor hillbilly, demon-worshiping, head-hunting tribe of Yangon Ifugao was 35,000 people scattered over provinces all over the place, and they were disregarded by the majority population. They were pushed into the nooks and crannies, the hollows and the mountainsides, in their rice terrace farms all around these four provinces. And as God helped us begin ministry there after the dedication of the New Testament, and we began training some of the early believers and just coaching them into understanding the gospel and how to present the gospel in villages. And they would go to villages and say, hey, we have a book in our language now, the first book in our language, and here's the story of the book, it's the gospel and tell about Christ. And these, these poor tribal people were saying, finally, we have someone that is stronger than the demons. Finally, we have release from oppression. Finally, we get to keep our animals instead of sacrificing them. Finally, we have hope of salvation and a confidence in forgiveness of our sins because of the sacrifice of that one great sacrifice of Christ on the cross. Amazing. God did a people movement before people movement was cool. And we got to witness it and be a part of it. Part of that was training these new elder guys and training them. And we just told local churches in Ayang and Ifu we said, if there is not a functional church in the village that is closest to you, you're responsible to keep witnessing and discipling until a church evolves out of that ministry. And so one by one by one, hiking, sweating, busting my knees, all the embarrassing things of a really tall white guy in a very strong, short guy location, right? These guys were incredible climbers on the mountainsides. We saw a hundred churches planted in villages. And I didn't plant any of them. God planted them by his power and the teaching of the word. And when we left to go to the jungles of Philadelphia to be the mission leader, they kept on doing it. Now there's 200 churches in those villages. And those people are supporting two of their own families, one of which I discipled, to go to a completely different tribal location that is impossible for the gringo guys to go because it is held by communist insurgents. And they're supporting them with rice and beans and chickens and eggs and, I don't know, wee pigs, go bacon. They're supporting him in whatever way they can to see them go and learn the language in another tribe and bring the gospel there. Praise God. That's the advance of his church. He's doing exceedingly, abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. When we first started in a young and evil god, there was no way that we could have imagined that God would do such a great work among those people. And now he's just continuing. It's just rolling as best they can. Fifth truth is this God's glory in the church is for all ages. Oh, let me, I I have to just tell this story for the sake of young people. This promise is often taken out of context. So, young people, particularly, are praying this promise as they go into an exam at school Lord, I didn't study. Please do exceedingly beyond all I ask or think. Give me a C, at least. (laughs) Or sometimes by young adults. Lord, I like that girl. Please do exceedingly abundant beyond all I can ask or think and let her like me too. Even as adults, we we sort of kind of lean on this verse. We, we put it up on our kitchen wall or something and, and we just take it blithely like for anything, for any context. I say, no, this is for a missions context here. The real application is missional. It, it's not for our purposes. So like John Piper says, you know, prayer is for warfare to accomplish his purposes. It's not an intercom to ask for more drink and chips from the kitchen. That's the abundantly beyond all that we'd ask or think stuff, is doing God's purposes through his plan, through local churches being planted in the rest of the world. The fifth truth is God's glory in the church for all ages. Look at Ephesians 3, 21. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. How many times have you read that, like me, and didn't see the church part of it? Praise God, glory be to Christ. Yes, that's true. But what it says is, in the church and in Christ Jesus. We discount that. We neglect that we don't often put our emphasis on that we we fail to see god's glory in the church the local church so ephesians 3 is oozing with mission's importance In the brightness of the indicative truths about the gospel and of Christ, we often fail to see the instrumental means God has appointed to accomplish his purposes on earth, and that is the local church. Here's some bonus applications before we get at the very end. Missionaries are the product of a vibrant, responsible local church rather than volunteerism. Interesting observation, again, macro-biblical stuff, We don't allow anyone to lay hands on themselves just because they said God told me doesn't mean God told everybody else. I actually related this truth, this altruism to Kathy when I proposed marriage to her. Woe be to the guy who says it's God's will for us to be married. You're in for a trouble. All the guy can know individually is, I think God's leading me to marry you. Now it's up to you and your parents and whoever else are your counselors to determine whether I'm worthy to accept the invitation. Just because someone says God called me or God's leading me Um, doesn't mean that the local church is similarly told the same thing. Qualification for effective long-term missionary service, particularly in the most challenging fields remaining on earth, it takes time and work and humility and accountability within the local church. How dare anyone think that they're able to plant a local church apart from real-life experience in a good local church, working with and alongside qualified church leaders? Training and choosing a missionary is an awesome and exciting labor-intensive task worthy of the Lord Jesus Christ and his gospel. There is nothing like a local church getting skin in the game. Your own people, your own children. I know I've done it. We want to see Anchorage Grace Church raise up missionaries from your body, train them well, send them out, support them well, shepherd them well for the long haul to establish a church where it does not exist. If someone here is feeling that inner compulsion, let your church know you and they will be thankful. So here's the final application, the privilege of even having a local church compared to many new believers in areas that are resistant or have been neglected with the gospel is an amazing privilege. There's joy in being committed to a local church. So be committed to this local church. This is your church. Attend, participate, not just a spectator. Get involved in relationships and in ministry with other believers. Your life will be enriched. And they actually need you too experience life in the body. Don't wait for the dark threads of God's tapestry in your life to occur before you cast yourselves into the joy and struggle and pray and hospitality of saints in the local church. The people that are most convinced about the good of the local church is something bad happens, and the local church comes alongside and helps them, and then they learn the lesson that, oh, this is a really good thing. I should be doing this too. Don't wait for that. We want to see God's glory in this church surprise all of our expectations in Jesus Christ. May it be so. Amen?